This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Very excited to introduce you, David, to Julia Flynn Seiler. She's a two-time New York Times best-selling author. She's a journalist who has reported from a dozen countries. Her new book, which I just finished, is a marvel. It's called The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Against Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. It was published by Alfred A. Knopf in May of 2019. The New York Times Book Review named it an editor's choice. She's also the author of Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure, and The House of Mondavi, The Rise and Fall of American Wine Dynasty. She's got a long career that I find very informing as well as reassuring in terms of what young writers might want to know about how to build a writing life that produces work that's of interest to others. So David, let me introduce you to author Julia Flynn Seiler. Hello, Julia. Hey, David. Hey, Marion. I'm so happy to be here. Welcome. So Marion, in other words, you're saying that Julia's a slacker. Right. From that introduction. Is that what I'm supposed to take away from that? She has what we, we call a writing life, David. That's yeah, what exactly. it is. Exactly. That's amazing. Well, Julia, welcome to the show. And one of the things that comes up a lot with nonfiction writers is the comfort of research versus the discomfort of writing. Now, to many writers, research is a joy, it's a delight. They dig, they quest, they love the privacy element of it, the feeling that you're getting somewhere. Now, it would be easy, and writers of nonfiction talk about this all the time, to never write. So talk to us a bit about the difference between the research period and the writing period in your writing life. Well, you put it so well, David. I am absolutely guilty of what many writers refer to as research rapture. I fall down that. Yep. We're stealing that one, you know. <laughs> research rapture. If I if someone would pay me to spend my entire life in archives and elsewhere researching, I would absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. However, as a matter of practicality and knowing myself uh, well enough, I force myself to research and write almost simultaneously. So. I will typically uh, write in the morning when I'm freshest, and then I'll do my research in the afternoon Mm. um, because I could just go on all day into the night. And so I really have, by setting those boundaries and those limits on how far I can research, uh, that seems to work best for me. So is there an actual moment when you say, okay, I, I can write this section, or I can write this this version, or I can write this draft? I mean, it, you say you're researching and writing simultaneously, but when, when do you know to start actually typing? Well, I tend to be uh, like a train conductor in, in mm-hmm. how I approach a project. And so I will, for example, um, my latest book, The White Devil's Daughters, I would 
give myself a month per chapter mm. and I have writing goals. So I would say I need to write 500 words this morning. And as soon as I get those 500 words done, that's when I get to research, which is what I really love. Oh, I love that you it's, paid yourself. This is the Graham Greene theory of 500 yeah. words, first of all, and you know it worked for him. But second of all, you're, you're paying yourself off with the research rapture. This is fabulous. It's like eating the peas before you get the ice cream. Exactly. <laughs> and it really, really works. And I, I tend to research on that chapter. So, uh, for example, you know, I knew the prologue of my book was set in 1933. It was a mm -hmm. very specific two-hour period in 1933. Many of the resources for this scene were in the National Archives offices in San Bruno, California. And so I spent a month. I could write. And then if I, I had a question, well, did she button up her coat? Well, I could go to the archives that afternoon and I could try to find that. In fact, that detail is in the archives. Oh, wow. Love that. So then talking about working with archives and research, how worried are you or should you be at all that someone else might be writing the same book? at the same time? Because after all, bestsellers seem to require at least a little bit of knowledge that something is brewing out there in the ethers and that it'll be a great interest of people two years down the line. So once you've gotten that idea, are you nervous that someone else is going to pick up on it? David, the funniest anecdote about exactly that question has to do with my book on Hawaii, on the last queen of Hawaii. And I was working mm -hmm. in the Hawaii State Arch Archives, which is in downtown Honolulu, right across from the palace. And I always check who else is signed into the archives. Oh, I love that detail. <laughs> because, you know, I'm competitive. I've been a reporter for a long time. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, there is an extremely uh, famous writer that is on NPR quite quite a bit. I don't think I'll mention her name, but uh, I saw her. My heart sunk oh. when I met her. I saw that name, and then I went in, and I, you know, uh, I introduced myself. We got to talking. It turns out she is writing exactly the same book that I'm writing. Oh no! And I walked out of the archives, and I walked around those grounds, those grassy grounds. Called my agent. Called my editor. Within, you know five or 10 minutes of, of leaving the archives to step out uh, and said, hey, we, we've got a problem. Someone else is doing exactly the same story. And sure enough, she came out about a year ahead of me uh, with her book. It did really, really well. Um, we both obviously had the same kind of thinking because uh, President Obama had been recently elected and his experience in Hawaii or background in Hawaii was very, very interesting. That, you know, but you can't do anything about it. Likewise, with the White Devil's Daughters, there's a wonderful, wonderful archivist and writer named Eddie Wong. And he was fascinated by this story, too. In fact, published a great piece in the National Archives magazine about it. And in that case, it worked out quite well because uh, I could help Eddie. Eddie could help me. I thank Eddie in the, uh, in the book. And, you know, we were both thinking about the same case at the same time. So that that was not a competitive situation. It was more of a, a collaborative situation in some ways. Well, that's a, those are good stories. I like both of those stories very much. And and of course, the the book, the Hawaii book, went on to be a bestseller. So I'm not worried that that the the first famous writer scooped you. And there's so much about your career that I actually find so encouraging. 
to talk to young writers about the promise of being able to write about things that matter. For instance, you've said in interviews that if there's a common thread in your three books, it's women in power. And I think it's really informing. I speak to a lot of young writers who would like to write about social justice, for instance. So I wonder, you know, what encouragement or life lesson can you offer to those who want to craft a career that covers a topic of social concern? That's, I'm, first of all, I'm so encouraged that young writers want to focus on social justice. Uh, now more than ever, we need those types of stories. That said, I think that the way to get people to read those types of stories is good old-fashioned storytelling. Strong characters, a very strong narrative arc um, that drives the reader through the book and turning those pages, and a, a very strong setting, an evocative setting. Mm-hmm. So if anything that I, any kind of encouragement or um, advice I would give young writers is, A, read books that are page turners. Um, and you can use some of the lessons from how those writers work and apply it to your concerns with social justice. I know that p- writers, for example, uh, study mystery novels, how, how to build suspense. Why mm-hmm. not apply that same lesson to social justice stories? So I want to follow up to that question. In your early career, you wrote about everything from biotech to puppy breeding. So does a young writer need to build those muscles and contacts and write whatever she's invited to write or whatever pops into her head or whatever she can get published? And that's how we build those storytelling skills? I think so. I mean, I was very fortunate in that I was a staff writer uh, for magazines and for newspapers for a very long time. And I wrote essentially what was assigned to me. I also came up with story ideas, but just exercising the muscle of writing uh, as much as you possibly can and writing on deadline is a really good one. Yeah. Uh, for example, I don't suffer from writer's block. I think because I had to, I mean, I wrote to, to eat. I wrote to earn a living for so many years. Yes. So that's, that wasn't the hard part. The other thing I would say is that keep on learning. You know, you may have a day job writing or working with words, but um, one of the things that I did that was really helpful was take uh, university extension courses. I took a fiction writing course, which was uh, very humbling. I'm a terrible fiction writer. but ah, Me too, me it. too. <laughs> yeah, so that was really good. And um, uh, I took improv classes, which strangely enough have turned out to be extremely helpful in terms of doing book events and talking mm-hmm. about the book because that's mm-hmm. just a different way of storytelling. Um, so I would keep on trying to learn at, as well as keeping that day job and ideally a day job where you're writing. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious. Now, you joined the Wall Street Journal staff while you were stationed in Europe. And then when you came back to the States, you wrote a piece about the Mandavi wine empire that ran on the front page of the 2004, and then a book titled The House of Mandavi followed. And then it became a New York Times bestseller, as well as a finalist for the James Beard Award, as well as a Gerald Loeb Award. Now it's in its 12th printing. So apparently you've got the right formula for choosing good topics. What is your secret? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, one thing is setting, of course. I mean, who doesn't want to spend a few days in a place like Napa Valley or Honolulu or Chinatown in San Francisco? Those are all very rich, evocative uh, places. 
and this the time is, are all very interesting too. I mean, I have a particular kind of fascination with turn of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. For some reason, during that gilded era, era period, that really captures my imagination, what was going on there. And it has so much resonance with our our world now in that there was such huge discrepancy uh, between the wealthy and the the, uh, the less fortunate. And, uh, and there was enormous social change during that time. Uh, so I think that's a really evocative period to mm-hmm. focus on. But most important, I think, is to have a you know, a good story involving conflict. At the House of Mandava, you had four generations, you had fist fights, you had billion dollar takeovers. <laughs> I mean, what's not to love about that? It's basically a soap opera. Yeah. Um, it, it's an incredible story. Likewise, I mean, one thing I learned about the the book about Hawaii is that the the fights were just as emotional and just as important. The stakes were just as high. Um but a lot of it was more subtle than the Mandavi story. There weren't fist fights in that case. There were Marines walking through downtown Honolulu, uh, but nobody actually got killed. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the, the stakes, of course, were the sovereignty of the Native Hawaiian people. But it's a very subtle story in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I turned to this Chinatown story, because there was so much action. There were Tong battles on the streets of Chinatown. People were facing bubonic plague. I mean, I find that I really like writing action. It's it's just fun and it's interesting. So um, that that was a res- you know, response to the Hawaii story. I wanted I wanted more action. And so, <laughs> So that brings us to your new book, The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. And is this the perfect book for now? It covers racial tension, historic legislation to ban some people from this country, how we turn a blind eye to human trafficking, blatant institutionalized racism, the history of women in power, and the demonization of immigrants. So it's perfect for now. You must have felt something coming. And so, again, I just want to talk about that for a second. Like, did you hear about it? And when did you hear about it? And how did you know that this is the book for right now? And if you forget any part of that question, don't worry, I'll remind you. <laughs> sure. I, I I think, like many writers and journalists, we so much of this hap- is happening. So much of the thinking goes on at, at a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. I, for example, I had... Uh, read a book about sex slavery during the Second World War. It was a fictionalized account of that. And this was while I was researching the book on Hawaii. And that book, I think I will never forget, never forget. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about sex trafficking and Mm. noticing it a lot more and noticing a lot of activity around this this area. And then again, uh, you know, there's actually a quite a practical reason for why I chose the the Chinatown story. In addition to it being a, a story about strong women and about empathy, it also just was plain old practical for me. The the key resources for researching this book were all within 20 minutes of where I live. In fact, one of them is at the San Francisco Theological Union that I can ride my bicycle to in 10 minutes. Oh, I love that. And I did learn that um, in trying to write the Hawaii book that the 
cost and the time and the difficulty of arranging trips to Honolulu to do that research was just too much. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that. I wanted to do something a lot closer. And I think that was a really good decision because I could run back to the the Theological Union's library and and re-look at materials that I had seen, you know, two or three years ago and look at them again um, in the context of what I now knew. So I would urge I would urge other writers to really think about what's close to you. Mm-hmm. And does it make sense to focus on that just in a practice? I t- tell that to the people I teach all the time about start in your own backyard because it yep. makes writing life possible for those of us who have kids or we have involvements in our communities or aging parents or a sick spouse or even a well spouse or you know a marriage you'd like to have last another year or so. You don't necessarily want to be flying off. So look around and see what's in our own backyards, it's fairly remarkable. I did some research on my house once just and found out it was a speakeasy during prohibition. And it's on my list of things to write about. So speaking of places we spend our time, your online bio speaks of you and your family spending a lot of time in public libraries. My first memory literally is of my public library and my mother flipping through the card catalog to show me something. I always say I was born that moment. And so I wonder what the library system has done for you and your family. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, um, the, my older son, uh, was a big, big reader. He was born in London. He started reading a little earlier than I think American kids because they start their preschool stuff earlier. And there was a, a local public librarian um, when we moved back to California, and she took a real interest in him for some reason. She would find books that she thought he might be, you know, interested in. And, and, and to this day, he's now 24. She still writes us holiday cards. Oh, I love that. Him. Well, that's sweet. It's just amazing. So I like to try to support our libraries. And it also is a place where it's like the last democratic bastion. It's where people of different economic and racial and social kind of places can can come together. Uh, So I I just think it's really important. And I also support support the Bancroft Library at the University of California at Berkeley, which is probably the most important repository of the history of the West. Um, And anybody can go in there and research. It's amazing. That's wonderful. So I wonder, in terms of where and how you work, do you work at the library? Do you work at home when you're writing? I mean, obviously, when you're on the road, you're writing wherever you have to write. But in this case, you were going to Chinatown, going back home to work. Do you have an office in your house? Just a little more on the process. Absolutely. So um, I tend to like to prefer to write in one place, and that is my home office. I look out on redwood trees. Um, I share the office with my husband. I have a stand-up desk, and I'm very particular. Like I just like to do it that way. <laughs> Although you know, from being a, a journalist, I can write on my laptop, and you know that's no problem. But I just prefer to do it in a very regulated way at home mm-hmm. in my office. And I do work in libraries a lot because that's where so many of the materials that I drew on for this book are. But what I'm doing in libraries is I'm typically um, using my iPhone and I have an app on it called uh, TurboScan. So I am scanning documents and then afterwards at home, uh, I will go through them and annotate them and you know mark areas that are particularly... Oh, that's so helpful. 
I love that. And in terms of your husband and you sharing the office, do you mean that you're actually both writing at the same time? I mean, is it a sort of recreation of the Wall Street Journal newsroom, but down to a scale of two? Two? <laughs> kind of, a little bit. You know, I'm looking right now. I'm looking at his his little desk over there, and uh, he is a little more sensitive to sound than I am. So he'll wear headsets to, you know, so he doesn't hear my clicking as I'm writing away. But often, actually, in the morning, I will turn on music and write to the music, and he will wait till late in the afternoon to come in. So we often trade off um, the space. That's great. I love it. So tell us then, you've covered all these different topics. Of course, the latest one is the White Devil's Daughters. What's next? Do you have something coming up? Ooh, I haven't decided yet. I have a long file, um, mm -hmm. which is my, you know, my, my tickle list. It's basically called Book Four Ideas. And I probably have 24, 36 ideas. Um, I particularly have one story that I am looking into at this point. It has to do with, um, I would say in a general sense, resistance about a couple who were resistors and in a very powerful way. And, and there's a connection to my family. And most importantly, there are there's incredible primary documents associated with this couple that have not gone into public archives yet. Oh my, that's so great. As, as, as a, a writer, I'm always looking for uh, primary material that is overlooked or that other people haven't seen yet. Oh, that could make for a story. That's a great idea to to base some of the decision on that. I, I am assuming you base some of the decision on a gut feeling. I'm and then maybe at what point do you talk to your agent and or your editor and see what their interest is or what they their their gut feeling is. What just give us a sense of the percentages in terms of who gets to have the final vote here. Sure. So my editor gets the final vote because she's who I'm I'm writing for. And we had lunch about a month ago and I I over lunch discussed two different ideas and I thought she was going to go for the first one. <laughs> no, you did, did you? Oh, huh. I did. I did. So absolutely. And so I have completely pivoted and that's the one I'm going to focus on. And kind of psychologically for me, because these projects take four to five years, they're so involved mm -hmm. um, with this project in particular, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll start it as a magazine article and see if I can come up with, if it's a good enough story to then consider for something larger. And and that's just, you know, those little baby steps make it a lot more manageable in my head. And particularly since this is a sort of dark story, uh, I want to make sure that I can live with this subject for four to five years. Ah, yes. Yeah, you must fall in love with anything you're doing book form because it can take so long to complete. Yes. And I love uh, The White Devil's Daughters. I never once got bored. I, I mean, mm, this subject was so captivating from the first moment that I started it. Well, it's captivating um, all the way through and every word through the through the manuscript. I, I found myself thinking that the prescience there, the rage that I felt the the understanding that I'm able to bring a bit more to our immigrant issues these days and this this boiling rage that some people seem to have about quote other people to see it having happened before in my country having known about it having known about all the all the aspects of our our history still made it so important to me um, to to get it right 
And, oh boy. So thank you for that. But I want to just follow up on one thing you just said in terms of the, they might do a magazine piece. Are you talking about testing the material on the audience first, or are you talking about solidifying your own ideas about what might go into the book? I solidifying my own ideas about what might go into the book mm-hmm. and, and more importantly, testing how I feel about living with very difficult material for that period of time. I see. It's really, it's, it's less about, I know that I can sell this magazine article. That's not an issue. Mm-hmm. It's, and I know that readers would find it interesting. It's more, can I, can I live with it? You know, it's, it's dark. So, but that said, you know, one thing I learned about uh, from, from the latest book set in Chinatown is that the way I framed the story of fighting against sex trafficking in Chinatown was as an inspirational a story of a few people trying to make social change in their communities, trying to do what is right and fighting racism. And likewise, with this new project, that's how I would try to approach it, which is, you know, individuals trying to fight something that's wrong. Well, thank you for every word you've written, and particularly for these, Julia. We're just delighted to have you on and really interested in what you're going to write next. So go get them. Spend some time (laughs) typing, and uh, we'll be waiting by the bookshop door. The book is The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown by Julia Flynn Seiler. You can find it wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Read more about the author and her work at juliaflynnseiler.com. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go. Music.